Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The True Christian, with a message titled, What is Lacking in Christ's Afflictions? So turning your Bibles to Colossians 1, 24 to 29, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. And he didn't mean that his life was finished and he was about to die. I mean, he was about to die, but he meant that he had completed all that the Father had given him to do. Nothing was left undone. The Father's assignment was finished. The Son had not failed to do anything that the Father had given him to do. And that included that he would be a ransom for the lives of many. And that leads Christians to a very important conclusion. There is not one thing that we can do that can add to what Christ has accomplished. We can't, by our own good works, make ourselves acceptable to God. If we think that there's something that we can do, we mock the cross and we belie the words of Jesus when he said, it is finished. Now, it is truly finished. For those who hope in Christ, it is Christ and Christ alone that pleads our case before the Father. It's truly finished. His track record pleads for all those who are his. Our only hope is not ourselves. It's Christ and Christ alone. It is finished. It's done. The work of Christ is complete, and it satisfies the demands of the Father, and that's the good news of the gospel. In a sense, when reading Colossians chapter 1, we already get that sense. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, who was, through his body of flesh, presented us holy and blameless before the Father. And that's an inviolable truth, that the Father is satisfied in the Son, and we're accepted because of that, and that forms the confidence of every believer. It is finished. We trust not in ourselves, we trust in Christ, in his perfect work, and not in our imperfect work. And that being said, the next section of Colossians presents us with a conundrum. Because at first reading, it's possible to read this next section of Colossians as if Paul thinks it's not finished, that something's left undone. Well, let's read our text. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, you're going to notice that Paul ends this passage in a very similar way in which he begins it. He ends it by speaking about toil and his struggle. He begins by speaking about his sufferings. So reading this text gives us the sense of a great conflict, one that's taken a considerable toll on him. He's exerted all the energy he has, and while he remains joyful, look, he's also in prison. And everything seems to center on that one line, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Well, let's see if we can unpack that. Let's begin at the beginning. Paul begins this section, Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. While it's tempting to begin with the words, I rejoice in my sufferings, I think it more helpful to begin with the words, my sufferings for your sake. 
See, Paul believes that his suffering is of great advantage to the Colossian Christians, and it is this knowledge that his suffering has benefited the Colossians that causes him to rejoice. That's not the only place where he writes this way. Remember that the book of Ephesians, that's also a prison letter. We find in Ephesians 3 verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, I need to add that in Philippians, another prison letter, Paul makes it clear that he believes that it was Jesus who sent him to prison. This was his assignment at this point in his life. In Philippians, he says that his imprisonment has allowed him to preach the gospel to the Roman Praetorium Guard, and consequently, all of Caesar's household is now hearing about Jesus. But that's not the point in both Ephesians or Colossians. See, his point here is that his efforts in planting churches has resulted in a very strong and agonizing backlash. Everywhere he's gone, imprisonment has followed, lashes. In Ephesus, he fought wild beasts. In Philippi, he was illegally beaten and put in prison. In other cities, he had been stoned and left for dead or simply driven out of town. The city of Thessalonica said that he was upsetting the entire world. When Paul wrote the second letter of Corinthians, he confessed that the abuse on his body was so severe, it left him not only weary, but he said he had despaired of life itself. And of course, finally, even his own kinsmen, the Jews, turned against him. There had been a riot in Jerusalem in which unfounded and untrue charges were brought against him. And eventually, because he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar and present his case. It takes no imagination at all to wonder why Paul says that his sufferings were for the sake of the Colossians and other Christians. Even though he had not planted the church in Colossae, he had trained the man Epaphras who had brought them the gospel. His hand had been there making sure Colossae really heard the gospel. And the gospel didn't come anywhere without a cost. Paul paid that cost. And we notice that he doesn't bemoan the price he has to pay as well as his present circumstances. But notice again, he's not complaining, he's rejoicing. All that suffering was not without a result. It had an outcome all over, both Asia, in Macedonia, in Achaia, the gospel had taken root. People were turning from darkness to light, from serving Satan to serving Christ. Churches were being established. The world would never be the same. I mean, how could Paul complain about his sufferings? The result of his sufferings had brought the gospel to the world. Very well, that part should be understood. Let's now read the entire sentence that includes the troublesome line. Colossians 1.24, Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I mean, what could be lacking in Christ's sufferings? I mean, surely Paul's not saying that Jesus didn't complete a full and final satisfaction before God on the cross. No, he's not saying that. I mean, there are those who read this and suggest that Paul is merely representative of all of us, that all of us, like Paul, need to fill up Christ's afflictions. And to some, that opens the doorway to purgatory, a suffering which eventually purges us of sins that still cling to us. You know, in this way of thinking, Christ made it possible to go to heaven, but our suffering is necessary to complete the way there. 
Now, Paul is not saying that. I mean, how do I know? Well, for one, the context of this passage says nothing of the kind. And furthermore, when we get to Colossians 2, 13 to 14, Paul will speak of the glorious truth that all our record of debt before God has been canceled out, and that record of debt has been nailed to Christ's cross. Nothing remains of the debt. I mean, go to that text on your own and read it. It is overwhelmingly clear. Nothing but nothing can add to your salvation. Christ finished it all on the cross. You're saved from your sins by the sufferings of Christ and not because of any of your own sufferings. No, no. Colossians 1.24 has nothing at all to do with purgatory or the need to purge out any remaining sins. No, no. Christ completed that. And by the way, if you're still not, you know, convinced of that and think that perhaps you might have to suffer in some way for your own sins, take the time, would you? Meditate on verses like, for instance, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. That passage says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, nothing needs to be added. His single sacrifice is once for all time— Therefore, it's perfect, and it is perfect for those who are the beneficiaries of what Christ has done. Again, I say unequivocally that we need to come with certainty before Christ, knowing that what he did on the cross has perfectly dealt with the sin situation. No purgatory is necessary. Christ has perfectly purged us by his blood. So what then does Paul mean by filling up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings? Well, he means that Christ's sufferings surely perfect those who put their trust in Christ, but Christ's sufferings don't guarantee that the entire world hears about Christ, that every tribe and nation and tongue and people group on earth has the ability to hear the most wonderful thing that has ever occurred, Christ died for us. You see, unless men and women go and bring the good news, the world can't know. For how can they know unless they hear it from a preacher? And Paul says he knows that if we are going to bring the good and saving news of Jesus to the world, to the dark kingdoms of the Lord of death, who is in rebellion against God, we know that Satan will strike back and hard. Christ's servants will have to suffer to bring the saving news. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 Caribbean ministry cruise may just be the right mix between relaxing and spending time refreshing your walk with Jesus. You won't wanna miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, laugh with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest, Amanda Stott. With breathtaking scenery, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement, it's guaranteed to be an unforgettable vacation experience. Now it's filling up faster than we'd imagined, so touch base soon for more information to download the itinerary or to sign up. Just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by those who participate. 
In order to bring the gospel to the world, suffering is required. That means there's going to be places where the gospel is not welcomed. You know, Matthew 10, 25, Jesus speaking. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Yeah, that means they will treat you in the same way they treated Jesus. How about Mark 13, 13? And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is, you'll have to endure the sufferings that come from bringing the gospel to the world. And the one who endures in this suffering will be saved. John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, Paul had been personally trained by Jesus, and he repeated Christ's words. I mean, listen to what he says in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And Paul was adding to this teaching in Colossians. He was saying, not only will they make you suffer, but their ability to cause suffering will not succeed in that it will not succeed in holding back the gospel. Paul's rejoicing. The suffering is having a positive effect. It's bringing the saving news of Christ to places that have resisted the gospel. This is what is meant when he says he's filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves why he writes this to the Colossians. I mean, after all, the problem among the Christians there is that they were tempted towards syncretism. That is, they were tempted to bring asceticism, Jewish legalistic practices, and Greek philosophical wisdom, and to make it a part of their Christian faith. What impact would the words of Paul have on the temptation that was besetting the Colossians? So let's keep that question in mind as we move forward. I'm not rereading verses 25 and 26. Remember, Paul is saying he's rejoicing in his sufferings. They're producing a wonderful fruit. A church of Jesus is being born in all the Gentile world. Now to verses 25 and 26, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul reveals his unique role in the fulfillment of the plan of God. He's become a minister, a servant of the church. And his service, he writes, is according to the stewardship of God. You know, that word stewardship, it can also be translated as administrator. A steward in a house or a steward in a broader business was a manager, one who's been trusted with the well-being of the estate. The estate is owned by someone else. The steward is called to manage what's not his. We all know that Jesus told parables like this. He told the parable of an unrighteous manager and also of managers who, when the owner of the estate returned, they would be called upon to give an account of how they had done. And that's what Paul is talking about himself, his unique ministry, first as an apostle, and also as someone who has been called uniquely to take the gospel of Jesus into the Gentile world, this is administration. This is what Christ, the head of the church, the one who owns the church, had entrusted to his manager, who is Paul. And Paul's under no illusions. He knows why he has been called. Now, follow that line of thought. Paul says that his stewardship 
that God has given him, and notice the words he adds, is for you. That is, God did that. He appointed me to benefit you, he says. And then he adds one more phrase. He says, to make the gospel fully known. The phrase fully known reminds me of a meeting Paul had with the Ephesian elders shortly before he was arrested and his long imprisonment began. He was then traveling to Jerusalem. He is in a place called Miletus. He didn't travel from there to Ephesus, but rather the Ephesian elders traveled from Ephesus to him. While he's there in Miletus, he gives the elders a farewell speech. And I'm reading here Acts 20, 26 to 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you, listen to the words, the whole counsel of God. Whole counsel of God means he taught the full meal deal. All of Christian theology, he left nothing out. He taught the full corpus of Christian truth. That is, says Paul, I did it everywhere. And that's what he means in Colossians 1.26 when he says he made the word of God fully known. And by the way, That's the challenge of every pastor and Christian leader today. You don't preach your favorite themes over and over again, but you cover the full corpus of Christian doctrine. The only way we do that is to preach the revealed word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, leaving nothing uncovered. Make the word of God fully known. Now move to verse 27. Paul has a unique role. He's given the task of revealing a mystery. Now, in the New Testament, a mystery is not something that's difficult to understand. You know, in most cases, the mysteries are easy to understand, but they're mysteries nonetheless. That is, previous generations didn't know about them. Now, Paul is saying that if you go to the First Testament and read what God said through Moses or David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, all these men revealed God's word to be sure. But now that Jesus had come, Paul says a new word has been given that the previous prophets never understood. Paul says a mystery was entrusted to me. Previous saints hadn't heard of it. Verse 27, to them, that is to the apostles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, so that we understand the you is that in Christ, you, that refers to Gentile believers in Christ. And that fits with the earlier part of this verse that God chose to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery. None of the prophets anticipated that the Messiah would gather a massive company of Gentiles and make them a part of the people of God. But Jesus revealed that mystery to Paul and sent him on assignment to accomplish just that. And notice the words Christ in you. That is, the promise of the Old Testament Messiah, that Messiah has made his dwelling place not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. And says Paul, that truth is the hope of glory. It's the only eternal hope that we have. Verses 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So that's Paul's work, suffering and toiling and sleepless nights and imprisonment. And always there's the possibility of death so that the mystery that the Gentiles would find their way into the kingdom is being made known. 
And why is that so important to explain to the Colossian Christians with their temptation towards syncretism and the temptation towards incorporating foreign ideas into the Christian faith? See, Paul is telling them, look, my role was to make sure that the gospel you received remains the true gospel of the revelation of the mystery of God and not the gospel that's simply acceptable in the current climate. God sent me to you by the way of this letter to make sure you don't lose that which has caused me so much suffering. So since I'm entrusted with this gospel, you better listen up. It's not your gospel. It's the only gospel that's ever been given. See, what does that mean to us today? Well, now to everyone who has ever received the good and saving news of Jesus, please understand that in order for you to receive the gospel, Christ had to suffer and bleed for you on his cross. Then after that, the apostles were also called to suffer so that the gospel would get to you. And since then, others have proclaimed the gospel that they received from the apostles, and they also suffered so that you might hear the good news. And therefore, you don't have the right to ever tamper with that gospel. You don't have the right to change anything in it into something that's more acceptable to the sensitivities of the modern zeitgeist or the spirit of the times. Now, you only have the right to receive the gospel with joy, to rejoice, to humble yourself before it, and to keep on preaching it, even if it causes you also to suffer with those who have gone before you. Thanks for your message, John. You know, we acknowledge that our salvation is free. But is there anything we should expect as believers regarding the cost of being a Christ follower? I think it needs to continually be said that when Christ calls us to follow him, he calls us to abandon our own lives and that we are to throw everything, if you will, on the gospel of Jesus. And if um, following him costs us everything that we have, you know, um, our wealth or, you know, our relationships and even our life itself, it is a small price to pay because what we have been given is eternal life. So is there a cost to pay? Well, yes, there are. Uh, So that's not a contradiction. That is, the gospel came freely to us. We did nothing to earn or deserve it. But now that it has come to us, we recognize that unless we value the gospel, even over life itself, uh, we haven't received the gospel. So the gospel demands that we pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And since our Savior died, and if he calls us to die, we do so gladly. And if he calls us to deny things in this life, we also do that gladly. Um, That's simply the cost of following Jesus. It is a pleasure to do so. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. I'm sure you're already well familiar with the reason we celebrate the Christmas season, but sometimes, What we know needs to be reconciled with what we feel. And this holiday season, Back to the Bible Canada has the resource to help you do just that. Quiet Spaces for Christmas. It's a 30-day devotional tool to help refresh and recharge your spirit with the Christmas truths you already know. 
Whether you're lonely, grieving, or lacking the joy that should come with the season, this devotional will renew you with the reassurance that our Savior has come and leave you singing His praise well beyond the Christmas season. Request Quiet Spaces for Christmas for free or request our new free holiday resource for kids, Jake and the Christmas Surprise at backtothebible.ca. Please be sure to select one free resource only, but you're welcome to purchase the other at the same time.